It's a great honour to be here, guys. I really love Geneva Push. I love what they're doing. I wish they were around 23 years ago when I started because I didn't have a clue about what I was doing. Um, but look, if this is a total waste of time for you guys, it's all right because God has already used it. On the plane coming over, I sit next to a guy who, I mean, the fact that you know a guy on a plane, right? There's all these flights going in for the Liverpool game from Sydney to Melbourne. They're one plane, plane after another. I'm sitting in a plane right next to a guy from Rudy Hill. Not only that, a former member of Rudy Hill, MBM, my church, who stopped coming six years ago. I said, do you think God has uh, got a point to be made here, Aaron? <laughs> of all the planes and of all the places to sit, he got you sitting next to me. So it's been really, we had a really good conversation. And uh, so if nothing else, I've got, a, I've got a guy to follow up on when I get back to Sydney who has drifted away from the faith and may, as a result of this uh, conference, come back to the Lord. So isn't that great? We can all go home now. It's been worth it. (laughs) Um, I love the idea uh, that they call, I think you guys call Westies here. Your your Western suburbs parallels our Western suburbs from what I've been told. Otherwise, this talk's going to nosedive really quickly. So if you can just nod and make it look like I'm right. In the sense that uh, same kind of demographics, which we'll look at a bit later. But I think you call them squinters. No, have you heard that? You haven't heard that phrase? Well, someone told me you call them squinters because I, because I thought that's an excellent name because when you leave the city to go home to the western suburbs, you're facing the sun. And that's exactly what we do. We squint. And, and you know, George would feel squinted, uh, squinted and uh, we're, I thought we were in good, um, good uh, company. Uh, I'm a Westie myself. I'm born, I, so the suburb that I happen to be ministering in uh, is Rudy Hill. You may or may not have heard. Uh, we had the debate between Abbott and Gillard a few years ago. Did that happen a few years ago? Was that Abbott and, and uh, who's the Prime Minister? Uh, Rudd. Anyway, so it's made, the, it's, made, and, um, it's made the news a fair bit over the years. Um, it's really an innocuous suburb, but I'll talk a little bit more about that later. I used to be uh, the altar boy of the Catholic Church up the road. Uh, coming from a Maltese background, I've now become the Anglican minister down the road, uh, which God's got a sense of humour. I'm intuitive by nature, so I've had to really kind of think consciously about what I do. Um, it's not that there's not a rationale for it, but when you're intuitive and you come from a place, you don't realise what you're doing, that ha- you know, what the conscious principles are half the time. There was no Geneva push when we started MBM, Multicultural Bible Ministry, which was 23 years ago. There was no MTS. I wasn't intentionally discipled. I went to Moore College for four years after I got converted and um, had a burden to want to reach Maltese uh, people, my own people, because I knew they weren't represented in evangelical churches. And, um, and I thought what I might do is, and I don't know how helpful this is going to be, by starting off with, what did I think when I left Moore College and started to do church planning and with the homogeneous principle, which I now actually want to kind of shift away from? And, and I thought, I started rattling them off. Can I use this, Sand? Is this... Front button? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we'll make it. 30, 34 convictions. I think since I typed this, actually, I've got a two more. Um, I'm going to race through this. I'm not going to labour this, but you never know. I figure if you get one thing out of a conference, it's, it's, worth, it's worth your money. So I thought when I left college to start my church planning, remember we, there were six of us in a Bible study in Blacktown, which is two suburbs away. I was committed to proclaiming Christ. Um, I believe that the gospel was powerful to say. That was a deep conviction. Uh, I was committed to proclaiming Christ from the scriptures. I think that's a very important qualifier. I used to evangelize as a young Christian. Uh, didn't see many people converted for the first seven years of my Christian life. 
And then when I started opening the Bible with them, I thought I got out of God's way and he did the work. Um, I remember when my first women's pastor came on and uh, she started, I said, Shemron, whatever you do, I said, make sure you open the Bible with people. And half of our growth came through her as she did that. Uh, thirdly, um, make sure that's being done at all levels, not just the pulpit, small groups, training, intentional one-to-one and conversations. Uh, working with men as, a, as, of a, as of a first but not only priority. So I just, I just there was a guy who was half interested. I hunted him down. Um, my particular brief was Maltese, but I knew it was kind of like a WOGS ministry. I don't know if you use the word WOG in, in Melbourne, but I'm a WOG, I can say. Um, we've later since started a WOGS for Christ conference that we actually might bring to Melbourne um, uh, next year. But I just, that was my target. I knew who my target group was. And uh, now that didn't mean I didn't evangelize others who came my way who opened to the gospel, but that's where I was proactive. Um, uh, clarity at all times. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, if they don't understand, whose fault is it? Ours. That's got to be so drummed into your head if you want to work in the West. Actually, it's true anywhere. Ministry in the context of loving relationships, that's the preferred soil in which God works. He can do whatever way he likes. That's his preferred soil. Follow the open doors for the gospel. I'm not going to push hard where people aren't interested. I just go where the doors are open. And it just seemed like I was like a detective. I would, especially with, the, with WOGs and there's kind of so many extended families. You, you, when a door opened, you just kind of, you know, one person led you to another, led you to another, and you just kept having the same conversation. Would you like, and, would you like to sit down and read the Bible together? Uh, that was pretty much it. Expect persecution, and we did. Uh, extended family networks proved to be great. Channels for the gospel, but they also proved to be when there was a block and someone got converted and there was a large extended family. I mean, I've got a 100 first cousins, right? Um, when you get hostility, you really get it. And uh, it was the thing that was we had to really think through and uh, having people talk to other people who were being persecuted. And the fact that my mother cried every day for two years when I left Roman Catholicism uh, really bonded me to many people who knew that, that I knew their pain. Two core values, it was simple, love and truth. Um, all things to all men was really critical for us. Uh, we we trained the, the church to love flexibility and adaptability. Creative with everything but the truth. There's a ministry in Sydney uh, in the creative arts, and they use that, that line, creative with everything but the truth. Um, everything can bend except the word of God. And, that, and we kind of valued adaptability and trained the congregation not to, re, not, to actually enjoy it. Uh, and you, it's in 1 Corinthians 9, you cannot be that and not be, uh, you cannot follow that injunction by Paul and not be committed to being desperately open to every kind of strategy that advances the gospel. All things to all men, so that by all possible means, I mean, he's straining at the bit, isn't he? To save some. Got to lead from the front. This is obvious stuff. You know, if you're not doing it. Did you, did you notice uh, when John was preaching? He dropped three times in that sermon that he's been evangelizing. It's exactly what you do. It's funny, isn't it? Because we've got that kind of, you know, Matthew 6, under your works of righteousness in, in public. But we've got to lead and we've, they've got to see us leading. And you ought to do works of righteousness that no one knows about just to check your own motives. But the reality is uh, all of that is telling us I've got a pastor who is doing it. He's up front and telling me three fresh. I think there were three stories. There's Jono. Jono. I think there were three stories you dropped in. And, uh, well, that, that, that encourages me. I, I just think he's doing it from the front. 
casting uh, the vision for winning the ethnic West. That's our job, and uh, we always want someone else to do it. I, I always think someone's is better than me to do it, but it's our job. We've got to do it and think through how to do it. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, present each person mature in Christ. We're not a renter crowd, you know. Um, the, the job is to present. We're not just on about evangelism. It is discipleship. We want them active partners in the church of God. We've got to, we want them on board in the mission. We want them. We, it's our job to present them to Jesus on the last day, holy and blameless. Um, and that's important, especially when you're a church plant and you're just hungry for bums on seats and wanting, new, wanting people converted. That it, uh, you, know, you know, Paul, you notice, only really starts praying for people once they're converted. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and you loved it, I've never stopped giving thanks and, and praying for. Okay, don't get tired of saying I'm sorry and I don't know. We're going to talk about being vulnerable in the West. It's really important. You've got to close the gap between you and the congregation. Am I going too fast? Okay, then. It's funny, you know, I'm sure there's 150 convictions. Isn't it good that I only started this not too long ago? Because I'm pretty sure if I wrote this, you know, 10 weeks ago, there'd be 150 convictions. Um, I'll tell you why I'm actually doing this uh, when I get to the end of it. Say you're present and read your Bible. Oh, boy, you forget that. Just pack up and go home. Uh, my identity is not in ministry but in Christ. You know, um, It's very easy to lose your joy in your salvation and that God chose you before time. You can, you can lose it because you're just so worried about everyone else's salvation. You stop enjoying your own. And uh, they know it and you know it and you become a grumpy old man fairly early on in life. Uh, you need to be able to walk away. It's funny, isn't it? You need to get to the point where you can walk away from ministry. Because I'm not defined by this. I'm defined by my, my in-Christ relationship and all the blessings that flow. I had to think about that five times in the 90s, three of them because my wife was not well. And I had, she needed to know that I could walk away from it as well. It strengthened our marriage. My godliness is the congregation's greatest need. Who said that? McShane, great man. And he's absolutely right. Our godliness is our congregation's greatest need. Um, now, when we started MBM, uh, it was originally called the Maltese Bible Ministry, and then a whole lot of Assyrians turned up, so we had to call it the Multicultural Bible Ministry. But we wanted to evaluate it after five years, but, our long, but we always approached it from a long-term framework. And especially in the West, when it takes a lot of time to raise up leadership, you get to enjoy the fruit of that down the track. Work hard because, let's face it, it's the most important job in the world and souls are hanging in the balance. So you, could be, you need to work hard. Uh, rest well because God is in charge. Drop your tools because it's his church, not yours. Love your family because they're your first human priority and um, they're your qualification. Once I remember doing Titus 1 and walking away thinking, wow, if my, if my kids go astray, I'm going to lose my job. I better love them properly. It actually proved to be that additional incentive to make sure that I was not presuming on them. Don't die wondering. I didn't want to get to my deathbed and think, oh, I wished I had. <laughs> Overcome. There are fears that are holding us back from doing certain things. Don't die wondering. Uh, live for God's pleasure and approval. You know, you just thank you, God, for John Piper, because he's really good at reminding us of this. You know, your greatest joy is is in his delight, in his glory. 
Um, my, my prayer diary, I, you know, I start Monday with that. Lord, may my greatest joy be in your glory, uh, that we, we live for his approval. We play to an audience of one. Uh, these are all familiar things, but I want to just say they were important to me early on, but I had to keep revisiting. Celebrate the success of others. Uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, whether it's their job or whether it's their salvation. Share in the sorrows of others. We weep with those who weep. And in some cases, we literally weep. Um, you've got to be there. Uh, do things well. Um, so the theme of excelling, you see it in 2 Corinthians, don't you? Excel in speech and in this and in that and in giving. Uh, we excel because God gave us his best. We excel in what we do. Firstly, in character, right through to confidence. But we excel because we love the congregation. So whenever anyone... Uh, so the next line, preparation over presentation. You know, when someone botches something up on Sunday, I, I said, look, I'm only interested in one thing. Did you prepare? And if they don't, I said, why didn't you love the congregation? Jesus spilled blood for them. And so I want them to be driven by love for the people and uh, God's glory. Services. Um, oh, look, uh, I didn't have a really thought out. I actually stole this from St. Matthias, but no one in St. Matthias remembers it. <laughs> um, our services, church services, ran on three principles. We wanted it to be personal. We wanted it to be profitable. That's edification, in case you're wondering. I didn't have the prosperity gospel thrown in there. Although I did have a habit of singing We're in the Money after the, uh, in the first year at the end of every service, and I don't know why that phrase, but I had to stop singing it. Um, personal, profitable, and pleasurable. Uh, personal, uh, we didn't go the uh, liturgical line, uh, especially in the West. We found it wasn't going to be helpful. We can have that debate later. Profitable, everything had to be driven by the word and for the good of others. And pleasurable, it's an obvious thing, but, but uh, you get caught up in this little time walk where you're just following traditions for the sake of it, and all of a sudden there's a disjuncture between you and the culture that you're in. And so I started every week, I'm thinking, what can we do this Sunday that would actually be enjoyable and, and helpful and how we do things? Because my, my commitment to love the congregation means I just don't want to do the same things the same way without thought. So I always think, what's something fresh that we can add each Sunday that will help people be edified and done in a way that's pleasurable? And then create a culture of grace. Now, we talk grace, but grace is taught, expressed in the way we conduct and live with disappointments. Um, and uh, I'll talk more about that later. But, um, you know, helping uh, when people fail is usually the critical time. Now, can I say, I sorry, because I say things a little bit later. I don't want to say things too early. Culture of grace, I'll shut up then. Yes, that started with me. I remember as a young guy, I think, you know, it's all right, Ray. You can make mistakes. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> like, you have to give yourself permission. <laughs> it's all right. As long as, you know, the, the mistake isn't sleeping with someone else's wife, not those sort of mistakes. And, and, you know, when I teach a passage, I think to myself, you know, the third time I preach this, I think I'm going to get it right. By that I mean I'm going to really nail it. Because sometimes you're there, the camera's focused, but it's not as with the same clarity as, say, the third time you preach it. So you see yourself on a journey, and that was important to me. So grace applied to myself. Uh, grace applied to those who leave. remember one time I did Bible study with a, a guy who wanted to get baptized from a kind of a... a secular background and i said look why don't we read the bible and find out who jesus is and after seven weeks he got converted and uh, and he said ray thank you very much and we did seven base just for starters and discipled him and after seven weeks a couple of hours each week he's converted 
this measure of discipleship. He says, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Ray. But I've decided to go to Craig Tucker's church, who was a Presbyterian, had a ch- Presbyterian church plant down the road. He's a friend of mine. And I, and I thought, hmm, with gritted teeth, I said, sure, no problem. <laughs> but I thought, you know, that was going to be the day. That it, was, it was a reminder to me, were we going to be a cult or not? <laughs> Could I let this man freely leave? He was, he was going to a very good church. Now, the irony of ironies, of course, he turned up in my sister's church in Glenmore Park as the new Catholic priest 20 years later. I said to Craig Tucker, hey, man, I gave him to you, evangelize and disciple. He's now a Roman Catholic priest. What happened? <laughs> yeah, he left us for the Catholic church, he said. <laughs> I know it's a funny story, but uh, we, won't go, we won't say that. Okay. Um, so uh, showing grace to yourself to those who leave and to those who are going to make mistakes again and again. Hang in with them. Um, how you handle disappointments is critical. In bed with your spouse and Satan. What's that about? How you talk about disappointments at the end of a Sunday when you're debriefing with your wife in bed is where Satan's going to get his nose in the church. Because it begins there whether you're going to be embittered and uh, and kind of have a bitch session about people at church or whether you're going to think theologically even there because that's where I think Satan begins his best work. Will you be thinking, you know, feeling the hurt, casting your cares before your father, maybe shedding a tear because at the end of the day, you, there's, a, there's a day of hurt and pain, right? Sometimes it's one of those Sundays where everything falls bad, people say cruel things. But how you handle that is the make or break of a church for me. Because no one else is seeing, there's you and your wife, you can get away with a lot of stuff that's ungodly at that point. So I always picked, that's my little metaphor for and my image of whether Jesus is going to rule in this church. It's, it's whether it's just Sandy or I or me, Sandy and Satan. Okay, living in fear of committing adultery. I don't know what it is. I've seen so many good guys, better than me, lose it on this one. Destroy the church, bring shame on Jesus. And you know what, it takes years to recover and all the missional energy goes out of a church as people are wounded because the one who led them to the Lord is shacked up with somebody else. Live in fear. I still, now I'm 53, my wife's over there, I live in fear of committing adultery. Uh, that's why building in those principles, no woman in the house or in the, you know, unless there's, uh, uh, my wife is around. People not a means to an end, they are an end. Before God, you know that uh, one Thessalonians two reference. What is my crown, my joy? You know when Jesus returns, and then what does he say? Is it not you speaking to the Thessalonians? You are my crown and my joy. Oh, I could have thought he was going to say Jesus and his glory, but you Thessalonians, who I had sort of three weeks with <laughs> before I had to leave, you are my crown, you are my joy. You will be who I will be rejoicing in before the Lord Jesus Christ. People are not a means to an end. They are an end to the glory of God. I mean, you've got to frame it correctly, otherwise it becomes idolatry. They're not a means to an end. Don't take yourself too seriously. Really... And don't believe your own rhetoric. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're reaching Maltese and God brings Assyrians. Okay, we go for the Mediterraneans and God brings all these hippies. And I'm thinking, it's not really working. <laughs> but every time I go, you know, I say, we're trying to reach ethnics and, and God will bring who he brings. So, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, Always believe everything you say. <laughs> um, be open and vulnerable. I'll talk more about this. It's critical in Western Suburbs ministry. Straight talking, openness and vulnerability closes the gap. You're going to hear me say that again and again. And then enjoy life. You know, it's very easy to just forget. 
that, you know, just find those things that kind of give you pleasure. It might be watching your team play um, uh, or whatever it is, model boats. Okay, a- any questions on that? There's a, just a blitzer. There's probably 36. Anything on that you want to ask? No, no, that's what I was thinking in the first couple of years of MBM. I thought, that's what I did. We saw growth, and I'm just saying, well, what did I think? Oh, I thought I'd articulate it, yeah, yeah. First couple of years. First couple of years, they'd be worked out. No, I'm not against... I'll, I'll use anything, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not against tracks. Yeah. But are you saying that that wasn't effective because... No, I tended to have a habit of doing a lot of apologetic stuff and, and having conversation with my Bible clothes. Sorry, you know, you're not opening the Bible straight away in a conversation with someone you just met. It's just that my orientation is I want to get them to the Word. I want to let... I, what I discovered was Jesus does his own thing. He'll actually, he'll, the, the spirit in the world will, will convict that person. I just need to get out of his way and be a servant to the word. And it's funny how I had this resistance to do it for seven years for fear that I couldn't do it well enough. And, um, but I found that just getting over that hump and reading the Bible with people, it just became my little mantra. Thank you very much. It's, it's so painfully obvious and embarrassing, but uh, I still have to be reminded of it myself even after 23 years. It wasn't 25, we've been going for 23 years, yeah. So all I'm saying is, from the very beginning, my goal is to get them to read the Bible with me. Now, for me, you know what that means? It, it, it's got, in the early days when we just had a lot of people from Catholic and Orthodox backgrounds, they knew the plot line <laughs> of, the, of Jesus' life, for example. And as one person said, we had all the pieces, we just couldn't put it together. What they meant was justification by faith, substitution, atonement. You know, that's what they would say. And uh, so I just did just for starters. I had over 50 people converted through the second study, you know, on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It was more, but then I realized I had a broader demographic and then who didn't have the Jesus story. So we had to go back and do much more work with the gospel. So we did a version of Christianity Explained. But it really doesn't matter what it is that you're doing, uh, whichever method you use. All I'm saying, whatever the method is, take them to the word. Take them to the word, and the beauty of just for starters is, is if I can just, I, I'm just, still, I still use it after 23 years. It's one verse, maybe two verses. I mean, you read it in its context, it just it nails you down, it drills you down to some key ideas, and especially with working class people, they get victories early on. I can understand it because the comprehension questions are so simple; they really can't miss it. Uh, you know, um, what were we like when Christ died for us? Sinners? Yes, that's right. Well, and all of a sudden they're gaining a confidence in an area that they often don't have confidence in, which is reading. Yeah. yeah. I'll talk about that later, yeah.
You don't want me to do this talk, do you? No. <laughs> I've got two hours left to get in through. Yep. I don't. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit later. I don't. I don't counsel people, uh, for a start. Um, I actually build other people into that. I meet up with people. Uh, I, I I don't do any long-term work with women. So I meet with them initially, and then uh, work out with them how we're going to go forward. And then I'll keep making contact with them to see how they're going because I I tend to get the big stuff now. The other stuff there's a structure in place. The small groups is our key place for discipling people. So getting people into that. And the growth group leaders, pastors, are their immediate pastors, and there's a structure that works from that. Um, and then there's other mechanisms. I have a female pastor who I get involved as well, and she's got women who she's trained. But um, I don't, after an initial assessment of a situation, um, I don't go on meeting up with them. It's very rare if I do that. Um, and for all sorts of reasons, can I say, but, and I'll talk about that later, about the place of counselling in ministry, which is important. Because I used to be, you've got to understand, I used to be a marriage and family counsellor, so I'm a magnet to this. Uh, and, um, and getting me out of that re- activity while being concerned for those issues, that, that's the tension you're forever writing. Um, does that partly answer your question? Right, okay. Now, uh, any other questions? Ah. Yeah. You you assumed it. Is that? Is it? Yes, I know. I know. And I, I look. I'm. If I if I you can usually sense it, but sometimes you get caught out. You can get a fifty year old guy in a successful business who actually can't read. There's not too many of them, but they're around. And then there's poor reading skills. You you really you got to be upfront with the question, saying, look, there's no shame in me. Sorry. I hope you don't mind. I, I ask this question regularly. You feel comfortable to read it all. So I never assume that, you know. But at the same time, if they can, I'd like to get them to read. Even out, you know, I try to get them going in a forward direction if I can. But if they can't read, um, you basically take, you go right back. You give them audio tapes. Um, you, it's funny, their memories tend to be much better if they're not readers, um, and so um, you use the audio stuff a lot more and you pump them with sermons and you pump them with just the, the, the Bible actually on, on audio. Yeah. And it, because it's amazing. They'll be able to retain it and then say, look, we're going to ha- hone in on these verses. Uh, look, I don't ha- I've not dealt with a lot of people who can't read. Um, I'll be honest with you. So I'm not probably the expert in that area, but, but I, I am very sensitive to it. And I always say there's no shame in that. And then um, that's right. Yeah, there is indeed. And then, of course, with, we, we've got an ESL program running, two of them for refugees. We use also, my wife's putting a hand up, I'm just being reminded, um, we give children's Bibles to adults <laughs> because they, they get lost in the Bible, right? And they want to get the plot line. <laughs> um, I say, look, between you and me, get a kid's Bible. We give them one, we make them available because big pictures, not many words. I see, so Noah came before Abraham and after creation, mm, that's worth knowing. <laughs> and so that's a helpful thing. Sandy, did you want to say something similar? 
Ah, translations. Sam, could you repeat? <laughs> Good news is 14. 15. I thought I heard 14. Okay, yep. Contemporary English, 12. International Children's Bible is 7 or 8. And, so, and that's exactly right. It's the vocab that knocks a lot of them out. First, you know, when I became a Christian, um, I had my Good News Bible from my Catholic school that I hadn't returned. Um, and, and I had that for a year and that, that's what I had and that's what I needed. And then I went straight from that to NASB, which, uh, that was a bit of a jump. Yeah, we did lots of things, right? I went to the markets at 4 a.m. in the morning, Flemington Markets. Very heroic, just not very effective. <laughs> uh, actually had the effect of me leading from the front on that issue. Um, we letterbox dropped, we targeted areas and set letters out um, in different places. That didn't work. We door knocked, that didn't work all that much. We, you know what it was? It was creating a community where the people had caught the vision and were bringing people. As we always know, 95% of people come to church through relationships, not through advertising. I know a lot more now come through a website, and that's, a, that's really helped. But that's more transfer growth generally. We just find an existing congregation, whether you're 6, 10, or 50, uh, and having them on board, excited about what's happening when you gather, having confidence in the preaching and teaching and relationships, that's the soil. Now, that's more an attractional model, but that presupposes people are already excited to share their faith in the worlds that they're in. Yeah. Sure, excellent question. Yeah. After, after having a couple of really, uh, sorry, the question was, a bit, sorry, I'm not repeating. Just put up your hand and say, repeat questions. Um, the question was really about transfer growth and how I managed it. It took me a while to get my head around this, but once I had an experience of someone coming and discovering our view on a theological issue that offended them, but they were emotionally connected to us by that stage, and I had to spend so many hours with them, I thought, this is no good. So I called them my culling nights. <laughs> I didn't tell people that. I just, that was my, where I would throw out every offensive thing we did <laughs> as well as capture the vision. Like, sorry. So the, th the big thrust was on, this is what we're on about. If you've come to changes, you're going to get frustrated. I said, but let me tell you about, this is what we do. This is why we do it. And, and I didn't avoid the difficult issues. I went for them. Every kind of issue that are predestination, anything that I think would, would, would sort of somehow annoy them later on. And I said, this is where we, you know, I said, look, you can be part of this and not actually hold to these views and some of these views, you know. 
Um, I'm not saying some of these views determine whether you're a Christian, but I'm saying this is, this is our teaching position. This is what I'd require of people who teach the Bible. I drew a distinction. And, um, and so that saved a whole lot of endless pain and energy. Yeah. That's the advantage of starting with a blank slate. When you inherit a church, of course, it's much harder. I'm not the sort of guy that can turn a ship around. I'm a bit too impatient for that. So I, I did what appeared to be the hardest thing, but I think actually for me was the easiest thing, and that is start from scratch. Yeah. Oh, so on a regular basis, it's basically your newish night, you know, what other people call their newish nights, where you invite people to your home uh, and say, look, I want to tell you about our, it's, what, what, um, you know, your, your intro to the church life, you know, so for new people to find out. But for me, I was thinking, I'm not going to waste my time because they just, it just takes, it's endless. You, you just spend all your time trying to argue a case theologically with someone who's already convicted about their position. Fine, free country, but, you know. I'm going to have to spend four nights with you trying to get to a point where you're probably not going to change anyway. Might be too pessimistic or pragmatic. Um, so I want the debates early on, you know, or I want them coming already knowing what the church is on about and then and not... Because it hijacks your mission. You're spending forever trying to do that when, when I need to get go forward with those who want to go forward. Uh, but even that, I mean, I'm, I sound like harsh. I'm really quite gentle about it. So, you know, I, I'm all tea, so I can't... I have to learn to turn the volume down with my wife when I married her because... I say things loud, but I, I, I have to pull back and say, look, I'm very actually gentle in that process, but I'm very clear and uncompromising for their sake as well. Because I said, I don't want you to, because I know you'll love us, because I love MBM, I love the people, and you'll love them too. And then you'll discover that what I'm teaching is so offensive, you know, on some issue that you'll, you'll, you'll then want to spend all your time trying to change me. And I said, we're not going to go down that road. Yeah. Now, um, I might move on. These, these are my weaknesses as I reflect. I didn't spend enough time training leaders. Um, training and then training leaders. I didn't put proper structures and processes in place. It's, I'm intuitive, right? <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, uh, decentralizing ministry. I stayed in the middle of the, of the hub for too long. Um, too many things went through me. Uh, I'm the opposite to my wife. Very organized. She's misorganized. I, I, I work at my preaching roster for a whole year, right, in November, why do I do that? Because she runs the children's program that, that, that mirrors the preaching roster, and she required it a year ahead. Whereas I would have been happier turn ahead, right? But because of that, I'm much more efficient. You know, I've actually enjoyed the benefit. But um, I, I don't decentralize. I, I don't read enough. I watch too much TV. Uh, uh, who prays enough? But, you know, I need to spend more time on my knees. And I was too proud to get a mentor. I've only had a mentor for the last four years. Well, shame on me. This new generation, everyone's got mentors. I now require every staff member to get a mentor in their area, at least one. Otherwise, they're not staying on staff. It is so because, you know, you, your, your circle of knowledge is restricted. You actually need the wisdom. And you get a mentor for someone who's ahead of you, not a peer relationship. I've got them. I've always had, I've always been in a preaching group with my brothers where we confess our sins to one another, which, by the way, is part of the answer to Scott's original question about keeping you on track. I, you know, we ask questions like, who are you attracted to at the moment? You know, that, that conversation once in a while comes up because it needs to be confessed if it's happening. And, uh, but, I, you know, I had peer support. That was good. And I thought that was it. But no, nah, mental, critical. Right. Any questions?
Well, no, no, can I correct that? Um, I've started with a regional mindset because ethnics think regionally. We don't think geographically. We, we travel the other side of Sydney to go hang with our cousins. Okay, so it's about relationships. It's not about space. I've only learned to become a local church pastor in the last three years now that we've got a building built where no one in our suburb really knew us all that well because we were in a high school that faced a railway, station, uh, faced a railway line and was a dead part of Rudy Hill. So um, we, just to clarify, we've always had a regional ministry. Now we've got a regional and a local ministry. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I meet. Uh, so the, the, the place of other pastors in your area, uh, within and beyond your denomination. So within our denomination, we have missional areas now, and so we try to help resource each other as much as possible, and we meet up with each other. And because I'm sick of everyone reinventing the wheel, I mean, we are the dumbest organisation, are we not? where everyone's coming up with a new series, new logo, new images, new Bible studies, and we're not smart in the way we do it. So a few of us are actually trying to work off the same model a lot more. That's just more efficient, I think, and we get to work off the best. So at that level, uh, um, we, have, uh, I, we don't have a frat, uh, minister's fraternal. It, that's not functioning in our area. But I've met one-on-one with a number of them. And, um, and we, we occasionally, I think we should need to do it more, pray for them so that... Um, we actually are reminding ourselves that we're all in the kingdom of God and not just be denominationally focused. You know, there's a Pentecostal church that meets across the road. We need to be praying for them. We need to pray for the Uniting Church that's across the road as well. You know, uh, they're both a little bit different from us theologically, but they both love the Lord Jesus and both have the gospel in their particular case. Yeah. Okay, uh, I might move on now. When we talk before we get to the distinctives of Westie's ministry, because I've just touched on, but I haven't really focused on it. I always found it helpful to think through what do we have in common. So I was going to read Acts 17, but I don't think time really allows me. When am I I stopping this session? Okay, so I'm assuming you know the the great sermon of Paul at the Areopagus uh, to the Athenians. And it's interesting how he preaches that sermon. I mean, it starts off with him being distressed by the idolatry and... um, Woe that we'd be more distressed. <laughs> um, his language is very inclusive. Um, uh, he starts with where they're at, the unknown God. He quotes their philosophers, uh, like I quote Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. Um, uh, his language is inclusive. We should not think. So it, it's, uh, he, he, he's not working with Jew and Gentile, but humanity. But what's interesting is the things all humans have in common. And so I just want to touch on this very briefly, that... As you do ministry, and perhaps you're working with a group that's actually different from you or a little bit alien to you, these are things we have in common. One God who who, uh, created heaven and earth, um, there's a critique on idolatry, um, who sustains, uh, creates and sustains all nations, so um, uh, all equally dependent on him. He gives uh, all breath and life. We are all his offspring. It happens through one man, Adam. We're all cousins. uh, God determines where people should live uh, with the purpose that they would reach out for him and find him, which is an important reminder to us that behind the immigration policy of Menzies in the 50s uh, was the Lord God determining that people would come to Australia so they could hear the gospel, reach out for him and find him. That's a really precious idea for us at MBM. 
um, that, uh, that uh, there's one command for all. God commands all people everywhere to repent. We'll have to stand before one judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that God has sufficient, given sufficient proof to all people by raising them from the dead. Now, within that, of course, is we're all image bearers, we're all fallen, um, and there is, what I'm saying is, that's the ground you have to have clear in your head. So whether you're dealing with a Lebanese CEO, a Vietnamese grandmother, or a fourth-generation unemployed Anglo Housing Commission person, um, that's what we all share in common. It's very easy to get intimidated by differences, and you harp on the differences. Then hang on for a moment. No, no, these are things we all have in common. You've got to let that framework drive the ship. Any question on that? I won't labour that anymore. Just, yeah. I think uh, that's actually uh, something that we always try to find uh, as a common factor. Mm. Uh, that as you just mentioned, the contextualization of the people of the area is uh, another thing that is important. So, uh, how you actually move through that period? Uh, oh, we'll move on to that right now. It's just that you go so quickly to the differences that you just forget the obvious. And, you, you just, and what it does is that deals with a lot of issues, if your congregation knows it, uh, issues to do with racism as well, um, because that just solves so many questions for us. And you know, the fact that I might be intimidated to speak to someone else or I'm not equipped to or whatever the issue is, God has commanded all people everywhere to repent Everyone's going to stand before the one judge. He's given sufficient proof. How empowering is that? He's given sufficient proof for all people by raising Jesus from the dead. Wow, that empowers me. Okay, now I'm getting some of this stuff from Tim Chester's book. Do we have the book? Uh, Oh, here it is. So who's read this book? Right, read this. Forget, you know, because I'm stealing. The next three slides are just basically stolen from this. I just read read it last night. Remember I said I should read more? Um, it's called Unchurched. It's Tim Chester. Everything Tim Chester writes is brilliant, right? So he's, he's a great guy. But um, uh, he, he just, uh, as I was reading it, I was writing things down, and, and uh, it's so identified with my experiences. And then I'd read the next paragraph, and the next paragraph would talk about what I just wrote down. Uh, but you know, you just feel like someone knows your world. Unreached. It's called Unreached. Uh, it's by Tim Chester. And uh, so he says a number of things uh, just on reflecting on Christ and culture. God creates culture, okay? Um, You see, you know, the way in which after Genesis 3, the way in which technology, music starts to develop, and it's not deemed negative. um, uh, And and we understand with the Tower of Babel, obviously, the judgment on languages and the resistance of people to spread is a judgment. um, But but. But generally, uh, well, we'll see later that, that culture is part of our humanity living in different parts of the world and, and a diversity to be celebrated. Sin obviously distorts culture. And so you've got, you know, we're a glorious ruin, part glory, part ruin. Uh, and, uh, and it leads to conflict. The gospel both affirms and judges all cultures. And that's helpful. Uh, there's things in cultures, as we, we see, that are worth honoring and things that are worth condemning. Um, Paul's not adverse to generalize about the Cretans. I mean, you notice he quotes one of their dudes who wrote a comment 600 years earlier that all Cretans are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> you always quote one of their guys. It's just as general rule. You know, don't, don't do it yourself. Let them do it and then say, 
this is the culture we live in, and 600 years after that was written, you're still the, that's who you're ministering with. <laughs> uh, and so Jesus stands over culture. The, the Niebuhr uh, framework is a really helpful framework, then corrected by Carson and others. If you know the book, uh, Christ and Culture by Don Carson, excellent book. Okay, Christians uh, should affirm. So the gospel does it, and we need to do it, uh, both, the, uh, both affirming and, um, and then seeking to transform cultures. And the gospel transcends cultures without denying differences. Um, you know, Jesus is Lord, whether you live in the 5th century Bolivia, uh, whether you live in, you know, 21st century New York, it's, it, it transcends it all. All cultures, including working class, middle class elements, are, and that's a nice framework, they're either good, they align with the gospel, they're either bad, in conflict with the gospel, or they're neutral. Um, you see, you know, you've got the individualization happening in the West, which is ungodly. Uh, and it needs to change. Um, but the pursuit of certain ju- social justice issues at the moment are to be honoured and affirmed. You know, making poverty history is a good thing. Um, you have uh, uh, Eastern cultures that are much more corporate, extended family that's to be honoured, but those families can be idolatrous as well. So you're forever working out what's good in the culture, what's bad, and what's neutral, and just, uh, for, you know, food's an obvious one. Um, it's hard to take a moral high ground on, you know, baklava, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, they're just neutral. Now, can I say the hardest thing when you're part of the dominant culture is to see yourself as a culture. It's very hard. Uh, it's only when you're in a minority that you understand your, your cultural distinction. But it's very hard, can I say, if you're Anglo and uh, you, you're in a, a country where the majority is still Anglo-Saxon, it's very hard to see yourself as a culture because you're in it. It, it kind of creates a blind spot. And so you've got to work really hard because you're the dominant culture and because of that you have power attached to you That you, when you're working with other cultures. You don't want to in any way compromise the word. You just need to see things as they are, that you are the one with the power and you are the one who... Um, and that you too have cultural things that need to be critiqued. He talks about social lift. I'm just working through this fairly quickly because it's a bit abstract and I want to get to the concrete stuff. The social lift that he picks up here is not always to be celebrated. Do, you know what I mean? Do we know what he means by the social lift that happens? It's basically, you get someone from a working class background, they get converted, and we had this, we had a whole lot of druggies get converted. Well, they started working because that's what God wants of his people, to work. And then they found they had money. And then they learned to forgive and not sleep with each other's girlfriends and their relationships became better and they had a bit more money in the bank and they began to get promotions at, church, at work because they no longer lied. And all of a sudden, they were actually inadvertently becoming middle class in terms of at least status in society. And then they would often move off to the Blue Mountains or <laughs> move to another part. Okay, so, you know... There's elements of that that are actually good. That it's the fruit of living. God's way is the best way. And the benefits of that become self-evident. We saw it. It was beautiful to see. You just want to keep saying, you just don't want to make middle class culture the aspiration, <laughs> if I could put it that way. Uh, and then help them to hold on to a vision of, as Paul says, stay where you are and do ministry where you are and don't lose the vision for the people from which you've come from. That's why I love Romans 9 how he begins with that, you know, he'd be prepared to be cursed were it, if it would in any way make it possible for Israel to be saved. 
Now, you almost think, really? If someone else said that, I wouldn't believe that they meant it, but since it was Paul, he's actually prepared to go to hell in the place of others. Like, and sure, it's Israel and they're God's chosen nation, but they were his people, his flesh and blood. That loyalty to his own, uh, that commitment to his own, is what you want to make sure you inject into the story for them. And it's not just a celebration, isn't it great? You, you've got now two cars parked out the front and you own your own home. <laughs> Social drop is not to be rejected. And, and uh, we, we're parked, Rudy Hill, just the suburb, is an old suburb that now is quite multicultural. High percentage of home ownership, but it's parked next to Mount Druitt, which has 65,000 people that originally were from public housing. Now there's a lot more home, home ownership. It's an old public housing estate and it's... Lots of subdivisions to it. But, um, but there was a great ministry done about 30 years ago in Mount Druitt by the Soul Company, which is Presbyterian movement, and a number of teachers came into the area to minister. And I thought, oh, I've not seen that happen anymore. You know, where people are prepared to actually move geographically for the sake of the gospel as a new church plan starts. Now, of course, the danger is it becomes a little middle-class enclave and we're always forever battling that. But it really, the, the Salt Company did some very, very good work, saw lots of public housing people converted, and it was the fruit of people, of the social drop, people moving from middle class to working class public housing suburbs. And we need to make more heroes of people. We need to put that on the agenda a lot more. You need to cast a vision if you're in a working class area to get people to come in to help resource your ministry and, um, uh, and play a part in that vision. Any questions on that? Right, so he says a few more things. Every co- so when you're dealing with people, okay, so this, we're, we're thinking about working class and public housing, but he says every culture is part of humanity. That's the Act 17, okay? Every culture has distinguishing features. We're going to see that a little bit later. But it's very, it, the big mistake is you'll treat people as a cardboard cutout rather than as an individual. Every person is a unique individual. It's a bit like, um, it's a bit like thinking that when I meet uh, uh, a Roman Catholic, they're going to they're come one way. And as I wrote in my book, you know, I, I said you can't presuppose that, that there's one type of Roman Catholic. You know, there, there is many as... There's a breadth of theological understanding. There's nominals, there's active, there's those who are into the green movement. There are those who are neo-Marxists. I mean, there's just so, there are those who believe in reincarnation, like some members of my family. Um, and so you, you can't just go to the person already assuming of what they believe. We know this anyway, but he makes the point, and it's very important. You need to, so he says, the gospel is the power of God to save all who believe. We know that. Treat people as people, not generalizations. But we need general descriptions, and I don't want to labour that. Okay, so we've got the eclectic West. Really, when you look at the West, this is what you've got. Your West, my West is the same. You've got some middle class, you've got working class, you've got public housing, refugees and homeless. Pretty much right? Is that what your West has? I know different suburbs have more of one than the other. What you think is it's eclectic. There's no monochrome anything anymore. Um, uh, nothing's, there's no homogeneous category out there if you work with geography. Education, none, primary, secondary, TAFE, uni, ethnicity, African, Asian, Middle East, and other whole kit and caboodle. Is it the same in your West? Okay. Uh, oh, Scott's gone. It's not coming up? No, no, that's because it's driven over there. Hey, Scott, you're not driving it, man. Yeah, okay, come on, bro. I know I'm boring you, 
but you're going to get back in here. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm, food's very important in, in ministry. Thank you for picking that up, brother. So, uh, look, this is true. You've got you know, family structures that are diverse, single, parent, nuclear, blended, extended. You've got subcultures within that. So we, we've had a ministry to uh, um, hardcore heavy metal with a bit of hippie, a bit of goth in them. And uh, in fact, we had, it was really, at one point, we had 13 of them up the front and one person had led the other to the Lord. It was about one of the, I wish I'd filmed it because <laughs> they're now social lift. They've now moved to the Blue Mountains, which is kind of white Anglo-Saxon and beautiful and uh, rather than the, the hard knacker. But they've all kind of, half, most of them have gone actually now. Um, but, but we actually literally had 13 of them and one of them you know, gets converted the lifestyle changes, impacts the next one, impacts the next one. I've never had that story where you can actually follow the gospel in 13 generations. It was one of the most beautiful things. But that was a little subculture that God had opened the door on and it had nothing to do with who I was trying to reach. Religion, non-atheist, agnostic, Christian, world religions. Um, and then, of course, I didn't have work there, which is the most obvious, you know, from labourers and factory workers right through to people with PhDs and dentists, you know. So in my church, I literally have the full range. Um, the, the two guys who do the welcoming on a Sunday morning, one's Joe, he wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning to start a furnace in a factory, and the other one is Jason, who's a dentist and uh, a very successful one. And there they are together. One's Maltese, one's a, a Syrian. Um, and that's the gospel, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel. Once you think, I, I, I'm in a unique world here where people are choosing to hang together from such broad demographic. And when it happens, it is a beautiful thing. Right, so anyway, any, any comment on that? That's what we're dealing with. Am I stating the obvious here? It's not monochrome. And so that's why you, know, you, you, you say some things. Now, what you need to do is work out who you are and, then, and, then, um, and know yourself. So again, from, this is from Tim Chester, but you know, these would be classic middle-class values. We, most of us would be kind of middle-classish, you know, uh, just to let you know, I mean, I, I'm a hybrid myself. So if I think about myself, I grew up in Rudy Hill on a market garden growing vegetables. So I worked with my hands growing up. Uh, um, I read The Telegraph. What's the equivalent of The Telegraph in Melbourne? Sorry? Herald Sun. I don't read The Herald. Uh, I start with the back page, the sport, and I go forward, and I never read editorials. Yeah, that's me. Uh, you know, so I, I, that, that's me. But at the same time, I've written a couple of books. I've got a master's and, you know, and I like thinking abstract and, and the history of ideas as well. I, I'm a funny mix. Uh, uh, you know, I really connect with working class, but I, 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 there's a lot of me. That, my parents valued education as opposed to my cousins who all left school at year 10 and went on the farm and now are all millionaires because, you know, you live on the edge of any city. It gets developed, and those 10 acres end up giving you lots of money in about 20 years' time. And I think, Ma, why didn't, you, why didn't you kick me out of school earlier? I could have made a million. <laughs> okay, so you just need to know who you are. You know, we value professionalism, punctuality, programs reflect di- diarised schedules. So there's a suspicious uh, of enthusiasm and passion uh, amongst middle class. These are generalisations. Remember, it's a limit of generalisation. Uni education is a moral good and primary means of self-improvement and we assume our leaders need to be uni educated. 
Now, again, I get that from Tim Chester, but that rings, bell, that rings true for me. Um, now, let's, let's, so we, this is the question about working class. Again, the problem is when you've got an eclectic West, some of this is actually not true for some demographics. So working class values, anti-authoritarian. It's true for some. I've got one Assyrian guy. I had to tell him that the police are God's agent in society, restrain evil, and that they're actually good and not bad. Because his whole experience was negative about cops, right? And those who've been, you know, we have a few people who've been inside, right? Uh, so you've got that anti-authoritarian element with some and giving them a theology of authority that also has within it a fallen recognition. Uh, entitlement mentality. Um, uh, and so for those towards the public housing end, um, have more in that, that there's a sense where I'm owed uh, because I'm disadvantaged. Reputation and respect is critical. Um, the struggle, it's interesting. Uh, I really connected with this. With a lot of working class people um, who are doing it tough, it's part of their identity. Life's a struggle. It stays a struggle. It's always a struggle. <laughs> and Alan Jones, who's a shock jock from, uh, in Sydney, he often used the language of, sh- of Struggle Street. Those who are on... He'd call himself on Struggle Street too. You know, he's like got 50 million or whatever. Um, but it's, it's how they define themselves in a way. Remember, all of this is in the Unreached book. Victim mentality. Now, of course, anyone can have a victim mentality. But uh, that, that's true where the world is seen as acting on them, not them on the world. And a high sense of powerlessness and a, not a strong sense of their own volition and will. And, uh, and so you talk about guilt and they, it can be quickly read as an attack. Limited aspirations. <laughs> See that quote next to it? Find an average mark plus one. I heard it the other day. A father was telling me about his 15-year-old son. He said, son, what I want you to do is find out what the average mark is in your school and get one mark better. <laughs> now, who here would say that to their children? I know some of you Chinese wouldn't, that's for sure. You guys, man, you get your kids tutored, you know, 50 hours after class. That's right. Because you value, you know, Chinese culture, very aspirational. You know, get Indian culture. Whereas in other cultures, like Islanders, man, they're just so laid back. <laughs> I can't get them. There's no academic trajectory for them at all. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> Can I say, the person who said that is a high entrepreneur in our church. He's very entrepreneurial. Isn't that interesting? He himself went to uni and six months before he finished his engineering degree, pulled out so he could start his own business. So it's a, I, I was shocked. When I, I didn't think, but he just didn't value education. For him, future is tied to starting your own business. So he's not public housing. He's not coming from that angle. It's just limited aspirations. He has high aspirations in one area, but limited academically in another because he doesn't see school as the ticket to success. Whereas Indians, um, Chinese, have worked out that's the ticket to success. So you get your kids studying like mad. Yeah. Mm. That's a very good point. Uh, it's, it's you've got to, re- any of these issues, you've got to reframe and think, what is, how does the gospel impact them? So that's right. So 
helping them to learn to be the best they can be, that excelling, not out of a perfectionistic mindset, um, but out of the fact that God has given us his best and these are God's people, we want to give them the best. That's a new road that they go down, that you're actually wanting to actually help them in. Yeah. And the irony is that person will give his best at church. That will never be the problem. He has given more financially, energy, you know. And in fact, interestingly, that person has been involved in our men's breakfast ministry and he is meticulous about how it's to be done. I've never seen anyone, the, the quality of food is extraordinary. It's presented beautifully. But not, it's limited, see how it's limited aspiration? High aspiration in one area, high expectation. In another area, you know, just, yeah. Exactly right, yeah. And so what you're trying to do is forever, as it pertains to the things of God, get them to think Christianly about it, really. That's why we teach from the Bible, and that's why the gospel uh, lies at the heart of that. Sandy, did you want to say something on that? Did you put up your hand? Did anyone else put up their hand? Yeah. Right, yeah. That's a, that's a good example. Um, just making sure I don't lose my place here. Right. Um, so really, I, I found this helpful. I think, yeah, I can identify with that. Uh, people are your assets. I found this helpful. Loyalty, high value. Um, they work off, you're not for me, you're against me. <laughs> it's very hard, especially when you're dealing with it. They want you to side all the time. Uh, now, this can be with anyone, but it's particularly with certain demographics and so I, I've had to teach the congregation, the only person you side with is Jesus in any conversation. And, uh, and that's what you need to tell people when they want to pull you in two different directions, whether it's a marital issue or two friends having a barney about something. That frame, you, you need to crack that framework for them, that it's not for you or against you. Actually, only Jesus has the right to do that. It's about, you know, what would Jesus have me say to this person? So, and I say, when I'm with you, this is what I'm going to say to you. When I'm with them, this is what I'm going to say to them. Um, so people are critical. They are their assets, um, not financial assets, because they don't have a lot in many cases. Now, remember, the West has got successful entrepreneurs, tradies. It's got, so I'm talking about some, not all. Um, but uh, that rings true. They're very loyal to me. I'm, I mean, really, it's it sometimes... <laughs> Sandy and I were talking about this. Sometimes we have guest preachers who have middle-class sarcastic humor, which, by the way, you've got to flush out of your system and out of your church. Sarcasm is the death to ministry in the West. And every time you sense it, go for it. The only time you have sarcasm is when it's idols. <laughs> okay, but never about people. Anyway, that's a side point, but you've got no idea how important that point is. Anyway... So you get the, you know, some of my mates who are Aussies and they're coming in and they're, they're paying out on me up the front, right? Well, forget it. The congregation won't listen to them. I said, I said to one guy, Richard, I said, please, 
do not make fun of my weight up the front. I've been on light and easy. I lost a few kilos. Um, I was a little bit heavier before. Now, and he would just do it. And, and it wasn't offensive to me, but I had people that were so furious with him that I, I said, you, they won't hear you preach if you go for me because they just love me. They can, stir, they can even have humor with me, but they're very loyal to me um, because loyalty is a high value, you know. Uh, which is kind of nice, really. It's, it's, I really, it's a nice job. I've always loved MBM. <laughs> um, uh, non-abstract concrete thinkers, this is really, knowledge is organized in relational ways. Making connections with existing learning. That's a very imp- helpful phrase when I read it in the book. So that you've got to start with what they know and build on it. Now, you may think that's so anyway, but it's that much more. They can't stay in the abstract that long. They learn with rather than from people, and so that's a whole apprenticeship model. Opinions of friends tend to have a greater opinion of authority. So they come to me, they often say, because they deem me on the inside, is that, what do you think, Ray, about this? Now, I know that I'm their pastor, but I think it's partly because I've got a close relationship with them and that they do that. They're interesting, they find out information by asking someone rather than looking it up in a book. Although, isn't that every guy? I mean, who reads the instructions? I thought that was a male thing. <laughs> I never read instructions. I always find See, I can see myself being actually um, a more working class in some ways because I will always phone someone rather than find out reading, reading the instructions. I just, it's not me. What was that? Mine too. <laughs> and um, so part of this actually is male, female, I think. Uh, failure in formal education makes interactive Bible studies threatening. So we do Bible studies unapologetically, but we've had some Bible study leaders who, without realizing, have really crushed people. And so I've got to, tr- I've got to work with them to be very gentle in the whole questioning process. I think the Swedish method of Bible study is a very good one. Um, you can Google. It's basically four questions. One of the questions is, what don't you understand? That's brilliant, because that makes not knowing a success. <laughs> that makes sense? Once you say to someone, you know, what don't you understand in this text? And they give you, say, I don't understand what this means. Excellent. Oh, right, good question. And you're forever framing it. Uh, often, if they come from Orthodox Catholic backgrounds, they've got some right answers in their head, right? Because they've got a Christian framework, uh, but they're not getting it from the text. And so the transitioning from... What you're saying is a really important truth, but it's probably not what the text is saying. Can you just go back to the verse? So I am still trying to I am teaching comprehension skills, but the transitioning from that has to be done very gently and respectfully, because respect is critical. You don't don't ever want to make them feel dumb. It's like a really high value. If if I ever smell paternalism, I I just go for it. So interesting that they prefer sermons to Bible studies often. Uh, that's, I mean, this is all from Chester, but I, I, I'm, I'm identifying. And you know what? So do I. That's where I do my learning. Um, yeah. I think it's, um, you're right, because I thought there was a bit of a, uh, a paradox between the two. Um, I think it's like the apprenticeship model. So you're, um, you're telling stories, you're reflecting on what you've learned and they're learning. It's almost how you do the Bible studies. You know, 
Um, it, it, he actually cites an example of, even when you ask questions, like we ask the diagnostic question a real lot, you know, um, if you were to die tonight and stand before Jesus, and he would say, why should I let you know more, what would you say? But before I get to that question, Sandy, how do you do it? You've got a lovely way of doing it. You ask about, can you... T- They're telling stories. Yeah, tell me your faith story. That's, that's got a softer edge to it. Um, right, what is it about Jesus you love? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why? And sometimes it's tones and intonations as much as anything. Because questioning, it's interesting, I've got a guy, he's actually one of our missionaries, and asking questions, he, Chet, Tim Chester cites when a middle class and a working class get together, the middle class person will walk away thinking, wow, they didn't really want to know anything about me. They didn't ask me any questions about my life. And the working class person will say, wow, that person was so, um, such a busybody. He kept asking me. He kept, you know, and, and like, there's <laughs> a sort of miss, missing out. And when I read, I thought, yeah, I, and it reminded me of uh, Jeff, uh, who, uh, who's Maltese and gone to Malta. Um, and he said, he found that, and he's working with a lot of working class people. It just made sense of that experience that he said, people found interrogated by questions. Even if they were just curious, oh, you know, uh, where do you live? Just kind of basic general questions. He said, almost you're coming on a bit too strong, that this is a culture, and that's the next point. Uh, I'll hear it a little bit later. It's, it's a question of storytelling, but we'll get to that later because I've jumped the gun here. Non-diarized relational styles. I'll tell you, my extended family... You don't invite people over to your place. You, are, you go uninvited to their place. That's how you love them. <laughs> Took me a while to work that out. <laughs> Which is a real pain in the neck because you never know when they're going to lob on. <laughs> and you've got to be ready to feed 20. <laughs> it's an interesting, isn't it? Like, it's just a different culture. You don't actually invite them to your place. You invite yourself to theirs. That's how you love them. Now, I'm, I'm talking about, that's a quote from me in my world, but uh, it, it's just non-diarized. It's... Uh, it's the come over to my place for a meal thing is a very middle class thing. It's not necessarily a working class thing, though it is with certain ethnic groups. So that's the problem. I'm saying things here and then I want to qualify everything. Working class see the world in terms of local settings. It's much more defined and small. Middle class can see the world in terms of national settings. Uh, food questions, different. working class people, yeah, did you have enough? So uh, it's about volume. That's why all-you-can-eat places do really well out in the West. Uh, but, you know, you go to a schmancy restaurant, you know, and you, you need a micro, magnifying glass to see the food. Oh, nothing gets up my nose more than that, you know. But I think maybe, maybe that's a male thing too. Now, he goes to talk about generational poverty. This stuff now is taken from Rudy Payne, Ruby Payne, American educationalist, and I... Cut and paste a bit here, but see if some of this stuff's not true. Now, this is generational poverty, three or four generations of poor, but I'm thinking working class identify with this. Background noise, TV's always on. Sit in front of the TV to eat. It's always on, like it's always... Well, that, that's exactly how I grew up. Importance of personality, the ability to entertain, tell stories. I mean, I've got cousins, you know, I'm thinking of Rita Sandy. You know, she holds court as she tells stories and they hover around her. It's often a common thing, storytelling. Usually, uh, and a sense of humor is a high value. It's your kind of currency. 
significance of entertainment becomes important and certain types of entertainment, that's where you get your rest. And it's the same with me. Like movies are very important for me to rest. Importance of relationships, survival depends on it. People having favourites becomes a high value. They tend to be more matriarchal. I think that's actually my experience as well. There's a survival orientation. So uh, again, I'm getting this from Tim Chester quoting Ruby Payne. Discussions not on academic topics but on relationships. So that's what I mean. You can't abstract things too long before they get bored. Uh, They don't want to discuss the whole issue of the homosexual issue. They want to talk about my sister who's come out. You know, that's that's the issue, not the abstract idea. You you do a job for money. It's not about career. There's no notion of careers. Uh, There's a negative orientation. Now, this is important. Failure at anything is the source of stories and numerous belittling comments. That's why a little bit later I'm going to talk about the importance of encouragement. And the reason why that's important is it keeps people in their place. Because if you kind of climb up, then you're walking away from a set of relationships. And I felt that. I've got my cousins who I love, and I'm almost only now reconnecting with them. Because our parents valued education and our worlds became further and further apart. And, and then it just, made, it, it just the, the wedge was greater. And, I, uh, um, and there was kind of resistance to that from them as well. And you often get story, you know, and so they'll... I've got one cousin who was talking about my niece, who's a doctor, who said, you know, but she can't grow any, she can't grow any tomatoes. <laughs> She's a doctor. She's married to a surgeon. She can't grow any tomatoes. There was a sense where it, that insecurity then played itself out in wanting to put down the other person to feel like I'm not inadequate. Now, the gospel does is is say gets the doctor and the uneducated farmer together and say you know these things don't matter what matters is jesus and that's the beauty of it when it when when the gospel comes to town things change discipline that's interesting it's a punishment is about penance and forgiveness not about change so it's not about helping the person learn it's about you've done the wrong thing you're out and then we'll forgive you back in i think that's true belief in fate Choice is seldom considered. That's why I think astrology is really popular uh, in out in the West in particular. While middle-class people believe the future can be changed with good choices, te- uh, uh, I'm saying public housing and lower working class tend to see themselves more powerless, more at the mercy of factors outside of them. Polarised thinking. Options are hardly ever examined. Everything's polarised. It's either one way or the other. I quit. I can't do it, you know. Um, uh, this is my own thing. Dramatic responses to crisis. In fact, some people almost live in a serial uh, TV soap opera. You know, they almost they can't live. They don't know. Uh, I think of some people. They don't know what a normal life is outside of crisis. They literally jump from one to the other. Sometimes self-created. Sometimes they go looking for it. I don't know. There's almost because it's about relationships. It's like you, you're. It's like you're. You're in a you know, Days of Our Lives episode. It never ends. <laughs> And then part of it's fed by overreactions because someone does something, it's all about loyalty, and then I come in usually passionate about something, you know, instead of a gentle answer turning away wrath, it starts World War Three, and just, it just explodes. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're empathizing, but you're, heading, you're getting him to think, okay, let's think Christianly about this. <laughs> 
Uh, only the present matters. Only, to, uh, the only, uh, only the present time matters. Lives lived in the moment. Tends not to consider future ramifications. Uh, being proactive, setting goals, planning ahead, not strong. For middle class people, the future is most important. It's aspirational uh, because there's a world in which there's confidence that if I work at something, I will achieve. There's, there's already been victories early on in their life to feed optimism. <clears throat> Whereas if you think there's no optimism, uh, there's no future, you, you're already giving up. So I often compare, I talk about, I touch on this later about uh, reading a book for someone who's not comfortable in reading is like me lifting the hood of an engine. I've already told myself, I'm not going to fix this. You just think, I don't know, for those of us who aren't good at fixing cars, think about how you think about that process when you lift, look at the hood of an engine and there's something wrong. You don't even bother. You just go and send it to someone. Because, because I've tried it so many times in the past and I've had so many failures that that's what opening a book can be for some people. There's little delayed gratification and... Um, uh, uh, tends to living in the moment, fast food, Foxtel, you know. There's actually a lot of cash around, but it's spent quickly. It's not saved. Okay. So they're generalizations. They fit some cultures more than others. But I'm telling you, when I was reading, I'm thinking, yep, 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 I can identify. Any questions on that? We haven't really got to the solution. Okay, so next, it's 12. So we need to finish now, and we'll look at some, uh, how we respond to these things. But I don't know about you, just reading, going through that, really helped me put things in order. Sometimes you get that intuitive thing, and then you think, oh, they live in the moment, right. So what it means is when I'm teaching people the Bible now, and I've got that category in my mind, I want to think more about how the Bible gets us to look back, look in the present, look in the future. You know, I've got now, I can speak to things theologically. I can tie the Bible in right where, where some values are held. By the way, I need to do that with middle class issues as well. So, and not say, for those of you who are working class out here, and you know, obviously you don't do it that way, it's that for those of you who kind of live in the moment, you, you speak about the issue, not the person. 